Hey everyone, this is Christ Presbyterian Church in New Haven with CPC Podcasts, and you're listening to The Sunday Sermon. Well, good morning again. Maybe it's now afternoon, I'm not sure, but it's so good to see us outside rejoicing and feeling empowered without masks and enjoying what's happening in our society even. But I also give you a good morning. Please excuse my uh, my hat. I know it's kind of weird to see a collar and a hat, though I suspect my dog would really appreciate this collar. Uh, a little bit of revenge, I suspect, you know, it's because uh, my hat says, if you can't read it, dog dad. And uh, Addie's about a block over there, probably hearing my voice right now, trying to escape. Um, she, he is the escape artist of all dogs, I'll tell you that. But it is good to be here, and, and I think that uh, especially the Lord wants to speak to us today. You know, let me ask you a question. What do you think is the number one problem in the world? What do you think is the number one problem in the world? And you're going, in the world? I mean, perhaps you're thinking, I don't know. Well, let me rephrase a little bit. What's the number one problem in your life? You know, the problem of all problems where you feel like that in itself would determine my happiness. See, here's the thing. The way we answered that question is the same answer to the question, what do we possibly idolize? Or perhaps better, what perhaps do we carry as a counterfeit God? Anything can serve as a counterfeit God. Did you know that? It is anything more important to you than God. That's the way the scripture would answer that. Anything you seek to give you what only God can give. A counterfeit God is anything so central and essential to your life that should you lose it, your life would feel hardly worth living. You see, the thing about counterfeit gods is that whatever you look at and say in your heart of hearts, if I have that, then I will feel that my life has meaning. If I have that, then I'll know I have value. If I have that, I'll feel significant and secure. Well, today I want us to consider the issue of counterfeit gods, especially as it is revealed to us as an anti-gospel anti-human flourishing, anti-true liberation. Now to do this, we're going to consider an event in the life of Peter. But before we do that, let's pray. So Father, thank you for this beautiful day, for the wonderful glory of being outside with you and with one another. Thank you for that breeze. May it be a little more breezy. But Lord, most of all, would you breathe into us the wind of the Holy Spirit, really bring conversions to this piece of geography, bring transformations here, bring us to encounter you maybe like we've never encountered you before. You can do that, Lord. I can't. None of us can, but you can. Would you please, Lord, send your Holy Spirit to reveal to us the glory and the beauty of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, let me just say it this way, that the day that we're going to look at in Peter's life was probably 
the very greatest day of his life and the very worst day of his life. Have you ever had a day like that? I've had a few of them, probably maybe not in the hyperbole like I just mentioned it, but but you know those days where something happens really great and you're high as a kite and then something happened really bad that just deflated the whole thing. Well, that's pretty much what you just heard read, wasn't it? On the one hand, there they are, Christ, with his disciples. We're now a good two, two and a half years into his ministry. They have seen his miracles. They've heard his authoritative preaching. They've seen the crowds who, who've mobilized around him. And, and Jesus now is transitioning to a new moment. The whole book of Matthew is transitioning. And so Jesus turns to his disciples and he said, Who do they say that I am? This is like the balcony question. What's going on here? And Peter, you got to love Peter, man. With his heart on his sleeve, you are the Messiah. You are the Christ, the son of the living God. Those words are sacred as they get. If you've read the prophets and the Old Testament expectations, identical words. They're spoken in the Greek from the Hebrew as to who this Christ, this person Jesus is. They were words that invoked the greatest compliment he could have ever heard. There's this one who's, he's convinced is the Messiah, the son of the living God. And what does he say to him? He says this. But you, who do you say that I am? You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And then he goes on and says, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. You could have just seen him sink with, with a blush of happiness, couldn't you? He is right with Jesus. Jesus just called him out in the positivest way you could have possibly done it. You are filled with God, Peter, in so many words. You are walking with God. You are right with God. Do you get it? He could not have had a higher moment with his Lord. But that's why what happens next begins to curve a little bit. Jesus, on the one hand, is ecstatic that... The world is beginning to see who he is. And he, and he begins to tell him what it is his great messianic authority will do. Let me read it again. I'll tell you, Peter, on this rock, the rock of that confession, the thing you just said, that I am the Messiah, I am the living God, I'm going to build my assembly, this great and sacred assembly. An assembly of people that's going to be like no other assembly in the world because I'm going to invest a power into this assembly that's going to accomplish what all the kingdoms of this world could have never accomplished. He says it this way. This assembly, this gathering of people called the ecclesia, which is translated in English, the church, I will give them the keys of the kingdom of God. Or no, of heaven. 
And whatever you, the assembly that is built upon this foundation of this apostolic confession of faith that Christ is the Messiah, whatever you do in that name and according to his way, it will be binding on earth that which is bound in heaven. That will be loosing on earth that which is loosed in heaven. This is a power like the world has never seen before. A power that Satan cannot withstand. He says, against which the gates of hell will not withstand. A power that originates, we'll notice, from Jesus, who is from heaven. He says, I will build my church. It's not a church. Notice this. Mark it. Asterisk it. That can be designed or empowered by human or earthly wisdom or power. It's quite frankly a heaven to earth transaction from God directly to humanity. Nothing of the kind of power, nothing of the kind of power that the greatest king of all kings on earth could have ever imagined to open and close the kingdom of God. Now, what will Peter think of that? I mean, I'm guessing, man, Peter, did you hear what he just said? Upon the rock of your confession, the greatest power on earth that is from heaven is coming. And you and these 12 will be those who will lay a foundation for that very ecclesia, that very assembly. So that brings us to the end of the greatest day of Peter's life. And you're thinking, but why? What's gone wrong? Well, just listen a little bit what happened next. What went wrong is that Peter evidently had a conception as to what was going to happen. Clearly, as we can see, he was looking for a revolution. He was looking for a kind of power from heaven that will seize control of the world's power that will take Caesar's throne, that will control Caesar's economies, that will control the populace and its politic, that would seize the power of Rome, and that power would be used to expand this great kingdom of God. He could imagine no other. And so when Jesus started talking about his death, it says he began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer. And he's saying, okay, yeah, warrior king, he's going to suffer and die. And die. Hold on. You could just almost hear it. What's that? What's, what are you talking about? Dying, suffering. What kind of power is that? I mean, how is this going to bring about this great, powerful kingdom you just talked about? How is that going to defeat Satan and all the evil? Nah. Peter was incensed. Evidently, Jesus had pushed a really raw button. I mean, can you imagine the words that came out of his mouth next? I mean, what has happened here? For he turns to his Messiah, 
And the scriptures makes it very clear. It just shakes you to see the scripture in the writing of it. It says, he rebuked him. <laughs> Peter rebuked the Son of God. May that never be, he says. What was he thinking? Well, clearly we know. He was thinking that Jesus was going to come and identify himself with the powerless at the time here, the Jews particularly, such as to help them gain consciousness of their oppression by this great oppressor of Rome. And, and then he would leave that, that passion as a revolution that seeks to seize control of Rome. But the key issue is that this power, you see, it's still of this world. The oppressed group would eventually gain consciousness of their plight and seize the means of worldly power, overthrow the oppressor in class and usher in a new society. He was all in for that and evidently had co-opted the concept of Messiah into that. You say, well, where are you getting all this, Pastor? Good question. You should ask that. Don't believe me. So notice three things that maybe you missed a little bit, or especially within the context. First, if we read on, did you hear what happened? Matthew explicitly tells what his followers, knew what his followers were thinking as he came to do this revolution, evidently. And he says, And behold, of those who were with Jesus stretched out his hand and drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. And then Jesus said to him, Put your sword back into its place, for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. That gives you a clue that Peter, greater movement, coming out of the Maccabean revolt particularly, who really understood, in good conscience, I should say, that God was going to come and eventually it's going to lead to this great conflict of a revolution. But notice what he said when it happened, because it did happen just a few chapters later, a few days later. Put your sword back into place, for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. I, that's not the kind of power I came to wield. And John, it makes it clear, in the very same instances where he drew the sword, John's gospel says it this way, my world, my power is not of this world. My kingdom is not of this world. Put your sword back. That's a clue. The second clue. Notice that Peter specifically was thinking revolution is especially revealed by his rebuke of Peter. So Peter rebuked the Messiah. We got a major league conflict going on here. And the Messiah turns around and there is absolutely nothing more intense than what Jesus said. You can't come up with a more intense statement. Do you remember what he said? He turned to Peter and said, get behind me, Satan. What would happen if you, here's this one you just love. You have followed faithfully. You're, you're ecstatic that he's finally announced his messiahship and it's going to come and conquer the world. World domination for God. I'm in. And he says, get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, Peter. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God. You are 
upsetting them with the things of this world. That's pretty much proof positive what's going on here. You know, there's only two times in the whole Bible where Jesus rebukes someone as get behind me, Satan. Those exact phrases. The only other time was when Jesus was being tempted by Satan. I don't expect you to know the Bible front and back. So let me tell you what happened there. It was a moment when Jesus went up to pray and Satan came to tempt him. And do you remember what he tempted him with? He tempted him with the world. He tempted them by looking out there and saying, do you see all the kingdoms of the world? That's how it began, remember? All the kingdoms of the world. If you'll give homage to me, I will give you all the kingdoms of the world. Their economies, their militaries, their politics, their populism, their academies. I'll give them all to you. If only you'll compromise your single-hearted devotion to your God and give some edgy, just a little bit acknowledgement of me. That was the context where Jesus said, get behind me, Satan. And he says the same words to Peter. The great reformer, 17th century John Calvin, he explained counterfeit gods. One can at once believe in God, he says, but then in the absence of God's visible image, tangible presence, want to replace God's invisible with a power that is visible. A power that is, humanly speaking, he described as worldly and earthbound power. He explains that idols, therefore, are human-made representations of God's small g. And that these gods replace the true invisible divine reality with a false physical reality. But the key thing is that they then are capable of controlling these idols, those who make them. Why? They can work them. Why? Because these are idols made in our human image. Here's the way it works, these idols. We begin to fabricate a representation of God who is invisible on earth. It may be strange to you if you've read Decalogue and other places in the Bible how often it was, do not make an image, do not make an image, do not make an image. It's much deeper than do not put a little clay statuette up on the, on the counter. This idea of an image that was the divine representation that was put into humanity. Even in Romans, it talks about how that image became perverted insofar as they rejected God as the supreme Lord and power that we would trust. It's not Romans 1 talks about making now little idolettes. It's that we 
the image of God, we distorted ourselves and who we were meant to be by creating images of ourselves as little demigods. See, what Calvin's talking about is what Peter was doing and what, sadly, all the human race has done. We, in a desire to fill the vacuum of the tangible, the, 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 that which we can control, we just fill them with our greatest assets. If you're a great athlete, maybe you fill that image with the counterfeit god of athleticism. If you're a great student, if you're a great worker, if, you, if you're a good mathematician, if you're good this, if you're socially good, you could see where all of them would have a counterfeit God attached, is what Calvin is saying. It's really pretty powerful. The temperature's too hot. It's just black. But let me take you through it. You'll probably be delighted. It's going to be at least five minutes shorter. So here we have this situation where Peter is counting on the fact that he now can do something to bring this great kingdom into this world. And Jesus says, everything visible about me is about to die. And this sword that you're hoping I'm going to bring well, that's not the kind of power that's going to do it. And what does he talk about next? Do you remember from the reading? He starts telling them that, that their power will be to suffer with him. That their power will be to turn the cheek and to love those who will oppress you. The people you want me to conquer, I want you to go love. And when they persecute you, I want you to love them back and suffer for them. Now John, I think, had a sense for what's going on here. Because in John's context of this sort of commissioning, he says to the church, this assembly, that you're going to be given, and he doesn't say it in the words, bind and loose, he says in the words, and you will forgive sins as they are forgiven in heaven. You see, Jesus was after the heart was after the soul, was after the affections, was after the hope and the faith to set people free from the bondage of this world and for one conqueror conquering yet another and vice versa. And so what we have is a story of, of Peter who met his worst day because later he would discover that he had not yet fully gotten it. That while he could profess Christ to be the great Messiah, the Son of the living God, he had still reliance upon the counterfeit gods, in God's name, that he was working. So let me just close with a little bit of a discussion about these counterfeit gods. You know, one of the first things you see is that counterfeit gods are everywhere. One author, and I can't remember now, said it this way. He says, if you think of yourself like a room or a house, 
room has a room-specific idol in it. That which will make that room beautiful. Make that aspect of your passion, your calling, your sense of identity, your persona, whatever, fulfilled. Perhaps it's that you have this, this vision of a life that's, that's free from all kinds of medical problems. Well, your idol will be medicine. Or something akin to that, maybe. Or health-related issues. You know, and, and if someone were to come and to take that away, those idols, it would push a button. And when it pushes the button, your button will go exactly where Paul Peters did. You might find anger in a way that seems strangely disproportionate to what is being threatened in your life. Why am I so angry when the pastor or the preacher or the teacher or the friend or the wife or the husband pushes a button that challenges that little counterfeit God because you have placed into that counterfeit God all the dreams and the hopes of your life they're related to that very area that you believe is essential for you flourishing. I'll never forget working in the inner city. And I uh, did that for about four or five years in Atlanta before I came up here. And, and there was a little kid named Nate. He was about, I don't know, 14, 15 years old. And, and um, he had a, a blind eye. And, you know, he was a very good-natured kid. And he was one of our favorite. He was one of the three or four guys that I would meet with. No, actually about five or ten guys that I'd meet with every week. And we'd have a little Bible study. Then we'd walk to Krispy Kreme. And they would eat about five or ten boxes each of Krispy Kreme donuts. And um, sweet little kid. Very sweet. Nate. 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 And I just never had seen in him a disposition. The one I saw one day when we were out there playing basketball. And all of a sudden, they're playing, and you know, Nate always, I noticed he had to be very you know, vigilant and looking around like this when he was playing. And somebody came up to him and hit him in the eye. What do you think Nate did? I saw a monster come out of Nate like I'd never seen before. I can remember it right now. He was so angry. He was so out of control angry. He launched to this guy and he's wanting to kill him. Literally kill him. You see what had happened? Nate didn't have a secondary eye. He didn't have an eye that, that he could rely on just in case the other eye went down. And for Nate, he had truly obviously and understandably, I can even say, concluded that life would be worthless. I got hurt the way the other one did. Now what would have been the way out of that kind of fear? Can you imagine the fear he lived every time he walked outside? Every time he did anything? Can you imagine the fear he had of getting in a fight, let's say, and someone popping out his eye? 
As he gets old, can you imagine the fear that he might have as his eye begins to diminish and he begins to wonder, is it going to go? Is it going to go? Is it going to go? I suspect that that eye was probably one of those controlling, oppressive, unliberating, anti-liberating, I should say, uh, room in his house. The others, I'm sure. Now, see, that's why I asked you those questions. I'm almost certain you have rooms filled with counterfeit gods. How would you know them? You see, if every counterfeit god has a positive and negative way of saying it. You know, if, if it's a positive sort of god, it's say health, which means that an anti-health version of the god, the other side of the coin, is going to be any disease that you encounter, any challenge that you would have relative to your health. And what would you see? You would find yourself obsessed with it. You'd find yourselves working as hard as you could work with it. You would work and you would work it. I know when I had a situation go to me, I stayed up all night while I was supposed to be taking my kid to Indiana University his freshman year in college. And uh, I stayed up all night when I discovered that my eye was, one of my eyes was going bad. I did what I do well. I idolized research. I was a research guy at the time, a graduate student here. I could do research. I had to do something though. And I researched and I researched and I researched. I walked with Nathan down the road, but my whole mind was concentrating on this thing that was moving over my eye, and I was a very fun dad to be with that weekend. You know, I discovered a little bit of an idol in my life. Self-sufficiency. And the way eyesight relates to that. And you can go on and on, you see? The negative is the positive. What makes you most angry? What is it that you worry the most about? But here's the sad thing. The sad thing is there's nothing going to break your heart more than a counterfeit God. It will break your heart. Because the disillusionment will set in that this thing is so powerful even if you confess that Jesus is Lord, but this thing is so powerful, waiting for the power that is of this world, the power that's visible, the power that I can see and understanding, wrap my heads around, that if I don't have this, it could be a house, it could be a vacation, it could be, I could just go on and on and on, a career, a grade point average, someone's love and affection, the applause of people, it will break your heart. Because the thing about idols is they're just counterfeit. One day you cash them in and they're worthless. See, Christ came bring what we call the gospel, the good news. And did you know one of the most prominent descriptions of the gospel is liberation? And if you read, you see that that liberation is liberation from counterfeit gods. They're oppressive. Israel trusted in Egypt one day. 
only to find that Egypt was a very, very oppressive taskmaster. And the thing about idols is the more you work to satisfy them and to appease them, the more you discover the emptiness and the disillusionment that they don't fulfill. And what will you do? You will work harder and harder. The idol is as if to say, make more bricks, less straw, less energy, but work harder. One day it's going to break your heart. It really will. To discover that what you spent so much of your resources and time and heart and soul for leave you empty. It's never enough. I said, you know, I'll, I'll have a project in my house and I'll obsess on it. Do especially in the winter when I'm kind of bored and late at night I'll be doing my little project, you know, this thing that I'm going to do. Maybe in the yard, it might have to do with my pigeons, it could be with my dog, it could be a Adirondacks, whatever. And then I do it and I think, oh man, when I get this, when this happens, man, I'm going to be the happiest man in the world. Nothing can happen the way. I mean, it doesn't last more than about a week. Maybe two. <laughs> and I'm already starting thinking, what's, what else I got to add to it? So I'm just going to bring it to a close. That's some really cool quotes, Drats. You can go online, maybe I'll get them to you. But let me just bring it down. Make this day a special day. Yes. Do what you've done already and what we will do and confess Jesus to be the Messiah, the Son of the living God. But be careful. Be careful. It could be the identity of your race. It could be the identity of your gender. Both of those. Sexism and racism. It could be the identity of your work or your financial portfolio, materialism, workaholism. It can be your family and your children. Oh boy, there's nothing more dangerous than worshiping a family because that will put your family in bondage too and your children. They will never satisfy ultimately what you wish they were or could be, not because you don't love them and think they're great, but because your investment in them as as if to a counterfeit God. That'll break their heart too. Maybe it's that you'd find yourself just constantly thinking about what people think of you. It's going to break your heart. So come to this table and give your heart to Christ. Give your heart to Christ. Not just your mind, not just your confession, but your heart. Really try to ask God today, could I possibly imagine life without this? And put into the this category whatever you said at the beginning of the, of the sermon when I asked you the question. The only way you will ever truly flourish with God is that you will ask God to put to death your counterfeit idols. Now here's the thing. When you have died to those counterfeits, God may still bless you with some of this. Health, money, relationships, 
children who flourish. On and on it goes. But now you'll enjoy it. you actually enjoy it. You won't be worrying about losing it. And you won't be worried about getting more. You'll find yourself, and here's this word that I find is increasingly absent in our world today. You'll find yourself blessedly content. Thank you for listening to the Sunday Sermon. We hope you enjoyed this episode. Be sure to subscribe to CPC Podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. If you like this show, consider a five-star rating, share it with your friends, or write to us at podcast at cpcnewhaven.org.